0: Right. Welcome to another episode of Sand Hill Road, my little pirate radio station here that allows me to study venture capital and the creation of technology companies by talking in public with leading operators and capital allocators. And I'm quite happy that today I'm joined by a fellow student of the venture capital industry, Kyle Harrison, who's a GP at Contrary Capital. He's a seasoned investor with experience at companies like TCV Technology Crossover Ventures, one of the leading and oldest crossover firms, KOTU, which is one of the Tiger Cups and most recently Index Ventures. And he has joined Contrary Capital as his renegade of choice earlier this year. Kyle,
1: really happy to have you here on the show today. Really excited to do it. I mean, I'm excited to dig in.
0: What I like about you is that you are not just an investor, but you're a content creator. You run the Substack 101 Investing, which I can highly recommend to any of my listeners. You have this great quote of yourself saying that I wouldn't consider myself to be the best at anything, but I'm a very observant industry spectator and commentator. Thinking about your own content creation process, talk a little bit how you started out and why you decided to keep churning out all this content on a,
1: on a weekly basis. It's funny, creating content actually goes way back to the very beginning of how I got introduced to venture, a different medium, but similar idea. So I actually, way back before I got introduced to venture, I had started a company out of school. It was a creator marketplace. I like to joke that I started a creator marketplace before it was cool. So I was a videographer. I was producing, in addition to my own random creations, I was creating commercials and wedding videos and stuff like that to pay the bills. Eventually had too many clients. And so started farming them out to other creatives, take a small percentage, you know, And eventually found myself doing that full time. So I was getting jobs for photographers, graphic designers, videographers, whatever. And a lot of fun ran that for about four years. And the success of that, I think at the time, I didn't think that I could continue to grow it. And so I ended up selling it. And in that process, I got introduced to the idea of venture. I had no idea what venture capital was. I didn't even really call my business a startup. Like I just wasn't in the zeitgeist at all. But as I got introduced to venture, somebody described it as, you know, when I looked at my business, I had all these passionate creatives and I'd loved being a resource for them that they could rely on in their journey. And when somebody, you know, heard me describe it that way, that's what I really like to do. They said, well, that's kind of what venture capital does. And that was my sort of intro into venture. I spent about a year at a seed fund in Utah where I'd run my business and got introduced to sort of the the business of venture and the mechanics of it. But very quickly realized I wanted to see lots of different types of companies of all shapes and sizes, not just seed stage companies. And so just when I jumped to TCV and had a great education, I kind of joked that I've seen the three flavors of venture. So when I was at TCV, it was very private equity-esque in the way that they did things and the, and the types of investments they made. And so a lot of the investments that I made were, were shaped by that style. I then went to Co Two and sort of saw the hedge fund style of venture investing. And again, similarly, it's very different, very focused on finding very large markets. And then for the last few years as a partner at index, I got the chance to get to see sort of venture classic, you know, the traditional model of venture investing and across all of those three models, I think it, two discoveries that led me to wanting to produce content and think about venture and, and be very open about the model. Number one is that I would seen so many different styles that I constantly had all these ideas rolling around in my head of how do different types of investors make different decisions and how does that impact them for better or for worse so that sort of rumination was very much there. And then the second piece was I found myself, the firms I worked for, I'm very grateful to them for the things that I learned. But while I was at Index, I found myself wanting to dig into a little bit more of a startup vibe. At first I thought maybe that meant I wanted to start another company, but I really loved investing. And so I thought, well, what does joining a startup venture firm look like? Right. It's sort of younger in in years. And so I'd known the folks at Contrary for a long time. But as I thought about, well, what is the kind of firm that I would want to help put my fingerprints on, I went through all of these questions that you see in my writing. And for me, the reason I call Contrary my renegade of choice is I started thinking about all the different ways adventure is changing. And when I thought about what were the trends that I was personally most excited about, Contrary embodied all of them, which is what led me to, to joining the team.
0: Yeah. And we've moved straight to the end as Elon Musk recently put it, that you joined Contrary Capital earlier this year. I think it was in May, but interestingly enough, there was a time of research, reflection and writing that preceded that and where you did an intense period of a couple of months where you talked, I think, to 90 different investors. You had a number of pieces outlining your thoughts on different strategies, sub-strategies. You summed it up nicely there saying that last year I found myself at a turning point. I was starting into my thirties. I was about to have my third kid. I'd experienced one of the craziest startup markets I've ever seen in the last 10 years in venture. I had worked at three different venture firms and worked with folks at countless others. And that's when you really took this step away where you also did a lot of thinking and soul searching maybe talk a little bit about this time of reflection earlier this year
1: i mean one of the things i sort of joke that for a world just steeped in innovation right in terms of technology is is constantly evolving venture is probably one of the most under-innovated models out there and that idea that venture had sort of stayed largely the same At first it struck me as sort of a sign of stability and, you know, just, you keep doing the things you're doing, thinking about, you know, intellectual honesty and decision-making and reflecting on your own decision-making processes and, and things like that, I reflected on all of that and it made me appreciate that I didn't know the answer to a lot of the questions, right? Like, why do we do the things the way that we do them? And is that good or is that bad? Does it lead to good decisions or good cultures? And so before i dove into helping to you know put my fingerprints on a firm and sort of help drive in a direction i wanted to make sure it was the right direction that i believed in the direction that it was going as well as think about it's sort of you know my place in the overall ecosystem right i think every venture firm is responsible for answering the question of why they should be allowed to survive to the market and what their unique process and value proposition is and things like that so Before I could answer that really, honestly, I needed to really dig into what have other folks done and and how do they make decisions? And what I found was that it's even more fun to be a venture investor when you're really stepping back and reflecting on the overall process and you're not just doing the day-to-day. My dad calls it the Sally principle, the same as last year. And you're not just doing things because that, I don't know, that's the way we did them last year, but you're actually being thoughtful about like, well, Is this the best way to do these things or make these decisions or hire people or build a firm or whatever? And so my, my exercise really helped me get under the hood on that stuff.
0: I love that. And uh, I mean, you touched upon it already that venture, there's this paradox in venture that venture is trying to find the most innovative companies in the world. But the venture model itself has stayed largely the same for the last 50 years. You have the two twenty model, 2% management fee, 20% carry. Largely stayed the same recurring management fee model. Obviously, there were a couple of renegades that said, well, let's use that management fee and actually produce value-adding services to founders. That was one of the A16Z innovations that they actually used the management fee to build a media company with that a venture firm attached to it. That was one of those things that people thought about as very innovative. But this this core idea that you have this under-innovated model at the core of the innovation industry i think that's a pretty interesting take in one of your pieces maybe you can expand a bit on this
1: yeah one of the things that i think a lot about is there are some certain sayings that folks talk about in terms of how venture strategies are dictated one of them is the size of your fund is your strategy right there's re- there's a reason why folks like benchmark have kept their funds fairly small because their model doesn't scale to have two and a half billion dollar funds. And so your fund size is your strategy. At the same time, these folks that go out and raise two, three, four billion dollar funds, they actively have to be deploying a significant amount of capital in large quantities into companies that have the potential to return significant amounts of capital after the fact. So all of those represent different strategies, but by and large, in terms of how the firm's strategy is dictated and carried out has always revolved around the partnership itself. These sort of select few individuals at the center of the universe. In some of these smaller organizations, I think that that model can do okay. There are certain things you have to be cautious of, of, are you really bringing in the best partners and are they you know making decisions not because of inner po- politics and, and those kinds of dynamics, but because they think it's the best decision. And if so, that's great. But it's really these firms that have tried to be much larger that's, I think, where the model is kind of broken down, where when you're making, you know, 100 plus investment decisions a year across different geos and categories and sizes and stages. And when you look at crypto tokens and stuff like that, there's a huge variety. And yet it's still largely driven by a sort of select group of folks who many of them have the same backgrounds. And one of the principles at Contrary that we think a lot about is, can you build a venture firm more similarly to the way that you build a startup where rather than having this sort of general partnership at the top that dictates every aspect of strategy, can you have sort of, you know, world class folks in whether it's marketing and events or community or even product and engineering and talent and things like that, can they really truly be world-class and in by and large, most venture firms, because it's so central to this model, that's been the same since the fifties and sixties. And even before that, the model has been very consistent. Innovation in that model, I think, is going to come largely from can you bring in really great people and build a unique differentiated value proposition with those people beyond just the investment team, but can everybody come together and, and build a really differentiated product? And that's not easy to do, and it's a super competitive space right now, and so I'm very excited about how venture is going to evolve as folks introduce new models and ways of doing things.
0: expand a little bit on this your fund size is your strategy i like this piece you have comparing the incentive structure of venture capitalists with that of whale hunters and you have this chart where you basically say that the way that whale hunters used to be incentivized was pretty similar to this 2 and 20 structure because you had such high risk going out there hunting for whales you had almost similar power law returns like you had in, in venture capital And I mean, you've been at three different firms, TCB, the typical crossover firm, then KOTU coming basically out of the public markets into the private markets, and then INDEX coming from the very early stage, growing and having a growth fund attached to it. So you've had basically three sides of the table when it comes to fund sizes and fund strategies, and to bring this back to the whale hunters, I mean, the whale hunters, if they hunt for the dangerous whales in the middle of the ocean, then you obviously have to give them a 30% carry because they're risking their lives, but they could say, we're going to hunt for smaller whales. We're going to go closer to shore. I think it's a little bit the same in the private equity industry. You have those large cap buyout funds, you know, targeting the 2.5x leverage buyout situations, they're not going after the 10x fund returners. And then you have the early stage funds who really depend on the binary outcomes, one or two fund returners. So that would be the ones that really should deserve the 30% super carry. How do you think about sort of the incentive models across the different whale categories that you're going after in the market?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that there are two things that have gotten kind of muddled in the last few years. One thing is the intense focus on the binary outcomes The sort of upper extreme of those outcomes became so significant, right? You look at, I mean, I think at one point, at least Andreessen's investment in Coinbase alone had returned their entire AUM, like not just an entire fund, but their entire AUM for, you know, 15, whatever, 20 years of investing. Those kinds of outcomes are massive. And so because of that, it's so big and so significant, it's sort of, has made it very fuzzy where folks think that every outcome has to be a massive outcome. And I think that what's missing from that is the nuance of, again, that idea that your fund is your strategy. You can have a different strategy going after very different things, but when it gets so noisy, when you think that everything can be this massive outcome, it actually sort of you know ruins or, or muddies the waters for every other strategy because it takes up so much interest and attention. And so as a result, you get you know companies that are not growing exponentially they're growing 20 30% they're much smaller in scale their technology is much less sophisticated typically they could potentially find great homes with private equity investors who are willing to buy the company and help do a lot of different things to improve their margins and and improve the overall health of the company but those folks have their expectations set on well you know i'm looking at these folks who are trading at you know 80 a 100 times revenue i should at least be able to get you know 50 times revenue or something and It just dilutes that dynamic within private equity. Similarly with folks who are okay, right? With, you know, whether it's like early stage firms with very specific focuses that have specific return thresholds, it makes it much harder for them to succeed when every company that is probably not going to be a, one of these massive outlier outcomes, but they're going to be a very good outcome. Those outcomes go from very good to very bad because they get muddied with all this emphasis on, on big stuff. So I think the incentive for the last few years has pushed people to say, Every company has to be a multi-billion dollar company with a path to being a trillion dollar company, and that's just not true. And that's okay, but it's gotten very fuzzy. So that's one bucket that it's made it very difficult. The other bucket that I think has gotten very messy is as folks think about what are investors being incentivized to do and what they should be incentivized to do is build long-term durable companies that can be very successful for the long term, right? They, they can survive. Survival should be a big focus for these companies, you know, survive and thrive. Instead what they what investors have sort of been incentivized on is this kick the can down the road, right? Whereas if we can just pump up how big the story is and how big the outcome can be, somebody else will pay up and somebody else will pay up and somebody else will pay up until eventually you get left with a lot of times it's the public markets that sort of suffer from that intense passing the buck game. And I think instead, what investors have lost sight of is the metrics and KPIs focusing on the next fundraise. That shouldn't be the core focus that you're so focused on. It is how do we most effectively drive the metrics and activities that will lead to a successful company long term? And I think we've lost sight of that, again, in this sort of hype cycle that we've been in for the last few years. But again, I'm very excited about the models who can step back and say, listen, we need to focus on. How do we build the strongest relationships with the sharpest people who are tackling the best ideas and the biggest problems? And how can we do that in a way that's meaningful and durable?
0: I think that's an interesting observation there of you that it has been really about kicking the can. A lot of angels, they basically pattern matched on you know who's going to be a potential pre-seed, seed investor, and then the seed investors, who's going to lead the A, who's going to lead the B, and the series B investors looking for an exit candidate, This really almost Ponzi schemish pattern of the industry that you don't build quiet companies, calm companies that can survive on their own. Going again, a step back to the general partnership model and the firm structure. You mentioned the venture model itself has stayed largely the same for the last 50 years, not only the funding model or the incentivization model with the 220 carry structure, but also the general partnership and Obviously those people driving those whale boats have been the the same actors, the general partners, those who own the GP and who get most of the carry. And it's been a very partner centric or investor centric culture within these venture firms. And you have this analogy of, it's like in an organization where everybody wants to be a salesman and the salespeople drive operations, they, they drive technology, they drive everything. And you have this clear divide between. Everybody who's a GP and then the ancillary non-investor functions. And I think you outlined this quite well in one of your posts. Maybe you can speak a little bit about this divide that you've seen across the industry talking to so many capital allocators.
1: But in my mind, the way that I think about this model, again, it goes back to this idea that it's not a one-size-fits-all strategy decision. Not every firm has to look like every other firm, right? Firms can look very different. They can have different types of people and different types of decision-making processes. A lot of these large crossover firms that have sort of built their reputations on speed and to some extent price insensitivity and, and stuff, they're not focused on any of these non-investor value add models because when they articulate their value proposition, it isn't about, hey, we're going to help you and be the strategic advisor that you can call at two in the morning and get advice from and stuff. We're, we're purely here to allocate capital that you need to grow and, and it's kind of on you to be able to go and execute on that capital. And that's totally fine. Like that's a strategy. And if you're a founder that you feel like that strategy is a good fit. Great. I think what, what happens is that firms who have been built up in this, again, this boutique GP relationship where it's largely these six people around a table or five or whatever, seven people around a table, making all the decisions and dictating the strategy and acting themselves as the value add. Most firms grew up kind of thinking about things in that way. And as they've grown in AUM, they've realized we need to be doing a lot more to be able to justify folks taking our money and staying competitive. But they have sort of raced towards the headcount and the AUM and things like that without rethinking the org chart and the structural dynamics of how folks progress in their careers. And so what is confusing to me when I look at a lot of these firms that have really exceptional talent people or data science people or even engineers or business development or what have you. Those folks will hire really high quality people and not always listen to them very much or not put them in a position where they can be really helpful or make really significant decisions or, or build an organization. And it goes back to this analogy you mentioned that I shared where it's effectively like the investing team is the sales team and the sales team is a committee that's in charge of every decision and everything. And you have these people where you might have somebody who's a really high quality talent person, for example, and they're really well connected. They're very good at identifying high quality talent early on and building relationships with them. But if that person looks at, Hey, I want to be at this firm for 20 years. How does my career progress? Many of those folks feel like they need to get on the sales team, that they need to eventually transition to the investing team. And in my perspective, there should be a better structure where you can enable somebody to be really good at what they do, right? You'd probably have really bad engineers if they were constantly thinking about, well, how do I get out of engineering and into sales? the same way that you should enable talent people to be really exceptional at what they do to feel that they have a long-term path that they can you know start to take on more responsibility and have more economic reward as they help build the firm and by and large that just doesn't happen today i joke that i'm obsessed with org charts because i think org charts really reflect a lot of your Mm -hmm. values and, and most firms it's sort of unfortunate what their values end up being based on what their org chart is
0: i love this analogy with the sales team dictating everything and that basically what's the incentive for someone who's a, let's say a data scientist at a top tier venture firm to keep doing data science when eventually you have to become a partner or a principal, you have to present in the IC because otherwise you're more like an ancillary service. In one of your posts, you're rethinking the org chart for the venture firms. And you have the, some examples, Paradigm, which is Fred Aresom's spin out of Coinbase backed heavily by Sequoia, but then you also have this example of Kim, when she left Coinbase and joined in recent Horowitz, she joined as the chief marketing officer and that you gradually have some firms who try to adopt a more traditional org chart that looks more like a typical corporation rather than a venture firm.
1: So for me in venture, and this, this extends to country as well. Country, even before I got here has been very thoughtful about How can you build a venture firm more similar to a startup and not to say that everything is exactly the same, but one of the things that I get very excited about is folks that recognize the sort of pockets of value that can be created. Right. There's the meme of he's asking how they can be helpful. It's kind of akin to like the joke where they say 50% of your marketing budget is wasted. You just don't know which half. Sometimes it feels like 50% of VCs don't add any value. They just don't know which half they're in. Right. The, The sort of value add proposition is very fuzzy. And the thing that I think some of these firms are catching on to represents where are the pockets of value that create for a company? There was a tweet a few months ago by Bryce Roberts when asked, he said, I think it was Keith, your boy that said, what is the number one thing that entrepreneurs are hiring their VCs for? If you had to sum it down, it's improved odds of success, right? You're trying to improve your odds of success by bringing on somebody else can help. And so I've started to think about a company's success or their odds of success as this sort of weighted average risk calculation, everything from founder risk to product risk to market risk to competitive risk, whatever it is, all of those risks exist for a company, whether you like it or not. And so then you start to ask, well, how can we reduce the risk in each of these facets as much as possible? And venture firms are starting to build their org chart around those pockets of value or those pockets of risk reduction, if you will. And so in in crypto, because it's such a, a frontier category where, I mean, the technology really is cutting edge, trying to be built, trying to create these economic models that can leverage specific pieces of technology. But it's very, it's very early. And even the folks at Paradigm acknowledge that. And so within their crypto efforts, what do they build? Like what's the org that they build to be able to sort of limit the risk for some of their companies? They build a pretty robust research organization because there's a lot of unpacking that needs to be done in this technology. And so they build research and then Andreessen's crypto effort sort of takes a note out of their book and, and does the same, right? So research is becoming this really valuable thing within crypto. And you see folks, same thing within marketing and Andreessen's launch of future, or even some of the sort of super angels that have popped up, right? You've got the folks like Packy McCormick and Mario Gabriel. They can be really valuable investors to bring in. Because they have such a significant following and people so appreciate their thinking and their frameworks that they're really valuable. And that represents, I mean, you can kind of bucket that in marketing. You can bucket it in a lot of different ways, right? Being able to tell your story or whatever. But the number of companies now that I've had reach out as I talk to them in lieu even of a deck, sometimes they'll say, Hey, you should really read Packy's deep dive or Mario's deep dive of us because it tells our story so well. And those folks have identified a pocket of value where they can help reduce the risk of a company's ability to tell their story. So I love how these firms are finding these pockets and then they're saying, all right, how do we build a world-class organization within that pocket? Not just, hey, how can we find a thing that's kind of nice marketing fluff and we can talk about it to LPs and the founders and stuff, but really it's us who are are dictating everything. It's really trying to structure these org charts around the pockets of value.
0: Yeah. I love that. And to bring that back to your analogy of this candle shop that a founder has some level of product market fit, he can basically choose his investors. And it's like walking into a candle store for him. Every candle smells and looks the same more or less. And it's really hard for them to distinguish. Everybody's saying how can I be useful, but who is actually useful? And you have this this quote from Austin Allred from Lambda School who said that, you know, VCs should be building a product and not a service. And what's the difference between a product and a service? The difference is that If more people use it, basically the product gets better while the service gets worse and that it really scales with a number of iterations. Maybe you can talk a little bit about
1: building a VC product versus a VC service. One of the things that I get some pushback on this when I talk about this is everybody everybody jokes about at one point, Google had kind of an AI bot where they could put in company details and stuff and it would spit out a yes or no, basically. That when I talk about a VC product, that is not what I mean at all. It's more this idea, and Austin articulates it really well, where if you have productized something, it is more scalable. A service by definition almost is very sort of niche and customizable to a particular experience as if it can be great for individuals, but the more people you do it, the more spread thin you are and the worse that it gets. This also goes back to your fund sizes, your strategy discussion, right? Where if you keep a small fund... It can be okay to have a VC service, right? It's if you've got one person and they are your board member and they are your advisor and they will support you based on their expertise and knowledge. That's awesome. If you try to raise larger funds, or if you try and do lots of different things for a firm and you have lots of companies taking advantage of it, it doesn't necessarily scale very well. And so the way that I describe productizing things in venture is it's a clearly articulated thing that can be replicated multiple different times without losing the value of it and so one example that i give is some of my colleagues at index they're phenomenal what they do that many of them have backgrounds in engineering in data science working in open source companies and working with pretty sophisticated ai and so there's a very specific infrastructure and ai quote-unquote product if you will at index and there's a few folks you know aaron price Wright and kelly tool and and some of the, the team there that has worked with a bunch of different companies They're very good at that specific thing. Are they going to be great for everyone? Not necessarily, but within their core area, they can scale actually quite well because the lessons that they've learned are very applicable to the folks that they're working with. There's no, you know, SaaS interface for that product. It's still people. It's still individuals interacting with other individuals, but it's productized in the sense that it's very well articulated. And I think one of the things that a lot of firms have sort of not done as well Is they want to be everything for everyone and at some point the ability to productize also depends on the ability to prioritize and being able to say listen we're really good for this area of people and and this kind of founder or this industry or this kind of business model or what have you we're really good for them there's going to be some people that's not a good fit for i think that's one of the things that that tiger's done pretty well in saying like hey we're a good fit for certain folks we're not a good fit for everybody and it's up to the founder to be sort of deliberate about, is this the right fit for me or not? But it's the area where folks try and be too much for too many people. It doesn't scale. At Contrary, you know, one of the things that we think a lot about is we do want to do a lot of things. There's several different aspects of Contrary's flywheel, so to speak, that exists and that we want to do. But we want to do it for a very specific subset of folks where there's a specific group of people and, and a certain kind of signal where we say, hey, that's where we can add a lot of value. There are certain aspects where we're not going to add that much value and that's okay. We don't need to get involved in those investments with those companies. It's about finding the sort of investor, founder fit that our product is a good fit for.
0: Yeah. In your time where you were reflecting about joining Contrary Capital, you spent some time talking to some people in your industry. You have some iMessage screenshots there where you reached out to some friends saying, have you thought about what's your firm's venture product offering? And you were surprised that there was surprisingly little thought process in some instances, and that obviously has shaped you in in being much more deliberate in that regard.
1: In the conversations I've had with folks, I think it's, and this is true in startups as well, you don't want to be a commodity, right? You don't want to be a person who's selling the same thing as the next 15 vendors, and there's absolutely no difference in what you're doing. You want to be different. And I go back to this idea that every venture firm is responsible for answering for their own existence, answering the question themselves, what is your unique value proposition? And there hasn't been enough of that. So a lot of the folks that I work with, often they're, I mean, sort of similar stage of career as me, where they're they're sort of the rising generation, right? They haven't been doing this for 25 years, but they've been doing it long enough that they know what a company needs and what can be valuable. and And so they're trying to articulate for themselves in whatever role they're in. How am I going to answer that question? What is my unique value proposition? How do I differ from other folks? The one bucket that is most important. And sometimes people think that I disregarded my writing. I think that it, there is a layer of choosing an investor that I joke is really, it's just vibes. It's one of the reasons I wrote one of my pieces called the unbundling of venture capital, where it focused very much on the individual brand and characteristics of the investor becoming increasingly more important. It's not just because the world is going to break down into a giant army of solo capitalists. I don't think that's the case. I think there'll be certain folks that that's a good model for, and that's awesome. But I think whether you're in a big firm or a small firm, or just an angel investor, your brand or your vibe is going to become increasingly more important because it's really difficult for founders to know who they vibe with. And so you need to do a good job of crystallizing and articulating what your vibe is and what you're good at and what you can offer them or what your firm can offer them. And so one of the things that I think folks, and I hope some of my writing also will push people to do is to more articulately answer the question, what is my unique value proposition? Where do I fit in the world? And start to focus their efforts on where can I be most meaningful? And to be okay missing out on some of the things that maybe they weren't a good fit for, and that's okay. I think that that is going to be where this sort of VC value add conversation starts to go is... As people try and really identify what can we be world-class at
0: i mean this brings me to the next piece of yours which is this history of venture capital divided into three stages one is the monolithic brands it used to be you know you would be funded by nea by sequoia and it wouldn't be so much about the partner it was these one brand firms and if sequoia led you around sequoia led you around and then we had this great shift now from at the very extreme, really those solo capitalists, the Harry Stabbings of this world, the Lee Fixels spinning out. I think you have other examples like Serena Williams, Pilot Gill, who are sort of recognized by their own as, as the super angels. And you have this, this area of, you know, monolithic brands, then the renegades on the other end in between this trend of feudalism, as you call it, where you had sort of some of these large top tier firms branching off in different strategies and recent oracles having a bio fund, having a crypto fund, having these niches to differentiate your product. Maybe talk about this really interesting piece of yours.
1: The original idea for the unbundling venture capital article that you described where, you know, you kind of explore this evolution. Part of it actually came from an article that I really love. It's called Naked Brands by David Perel and in it, he talks about how for basically forever, for as long as marketing has existed, consumers have used brands as shorthands for quality. So we don't always know all the information, but I know that Coca-Cola is high quality, and so if I have to choose between some random cola that I don't know, and I know Coke, and I know the the brand, I'm going to trust that brand. That was the monolithic brands example. Over time, and this has happened in venture, this has happened in government and lots of different industries. Over time, what's happened is, number one, brands have done some things that have violated the trust that people had in them. And so people have lost some of the confidence in knowing that they could just say, hey, I don't need to know everything. I know that so-and-so is great. And then some bad things happen or some products are really low quality or whatever. And the trust in that brand gets diminished. That's one thing. And then the second thing is that the world has gotten dramatically more complex, and so rather than being able to trust, Hey, this is good for everyone in every situation you started to break off and to say, this area really sort of deserves its own focus and attention. And it, it's big enough that it deserves that the way that's translated into venture is that you've gone from the monolithic brands doing everything to the example that you described, which is like, you look at Andreessen and they have multiple different strategies and those strategies are able to focus around a specific area. And give it its own attention what has happened basically since the rise of social media is that now rather than taking brands as a shorthand or even even a hyper-focused aspect of a brand as a shorthand for quality and, and something that you resonate with people have been more exposed to each other's lives right on social media you see into even super famous people's you know, personal lives and their experiences and their their values and personalities and you resonate with that and so in the sort of pop culture world where you have LeBron James or you have Kim Kardashian or whatever, you start to resonate with those individuals. It's sort of social media has kind of rewired our brains where we're kind of anxious about the big monolithic brand. We don't know what's going on in there. We don't know who's running the, the ship. We don't know what they've done before and what they're not telling us, you know? But when you look at a person, you feel much more comfortable that you know that person, whether or not you do, right? Like marketing is just as effective for an individual or, or a brand, like, you know, Different people are better at discerning. But within venture, I think that dynamic has occurred where people are much more focused on the individual. So I think you're right to the point where like, it used to be that you would just choose a benchmark because you choose a benchmark. Now people still choose benchmark and they're still a great firm, but they more often than not, they chose, a, they, they specifically choose a, 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 Bill Gurley or a Sarah Tavel or whatever, because they vibe with that person. And so whether that that vibe or that brand of an individual exists in a big firm, in a small firm, in a solo firm, or just as an individual angel, you look at things like you know, at Contra, we're investors in Warp, and it's a it's a Series A company where Dylan Field, the CEO of Figma, led their Series A. We're investors in synthesis, where you know it's an ed tech company that's just a phenomenal business. And they had their recent round led by Amjad, the CEO at Replit, and and Balaji, right? These these individuals are sort of stepping into roles where they can lead rounds because their vibes are very well articulated. And so founders can know, hey, I vibe with this person. And if the capital is there and those people can lead their investments, I can turn to a Dylan or I can turn to an Elad Gill or whatever, right? And so as that sort of personal unbundling of venture occurs, what is most important is that founders recognize their ability to say, Hey, I'm going to choose an investor because I vibe with them, not just because of the brand of the firm. And country is no different. We focus very much on personal relationships beyond even uh, specific brands or anything like that.
0: Thinking long-term if you have top operators, top founders who are coming to the market with their small rolling fund, getting a start in the venture industry, oftentimes in parallel to actually running their startup There's the famous example of the superhuman founder investing his rolling fund in parallel to building a superhuman. You see more and more of those examples. You mentioned the example of Harry Stebbins, who obviously started out as a 21-year-old, becoming one of the world's most successful podcaster. Then he partnered with Fred Dustin from Excel, started a venture firm, but now spun off again, is now a solo capitalist. But I heard Harry, for example, talking about how as he's scaling up now with the two fund offerings, I think he has an early stage fund and a growth fund. He's having to deal with more and more paperwork and there are benefits of being part of a larger franchise where you have a CFO, where you don't have to take care of capital calls and all of this administrative stuff. How do you think about how this is going to play out in the long run? Will there still be tribes or will the silver bullet be the new normal, the new IC where, you know, you can just do whatever you want As a solo capitalist.
1: One of the questions that I get the most because I've written so much about different models and venture and stuff is what is the thing or the trend that's going to sort of take the day, right? The, the most important trend that's going to change venture. And, you know, is it crypto and being able to decentralize away from these centralized firms, is it solo capitalists, is it tiger and crossovers and, you know, big firms becoming massive pools of, of innovation capital and stuff like that, what are all these things? And my answer is always disappointing to people because it's not as sexy as they might like. But it's not any one thing. It's everything. Is that If I had to use one word to describe venture over the next 15, 20 years, it's change. Even though the markets have gone up and they've come down, the reality is that the world is changing. It's not just an economic, well, in a bear market, it's this, and in a bull market, it's that. It's the world is changing. The way that people consume information is changing how they build businesses and build teams and recruit and all of those aspects, they're changing. And whether the sort of established players in venture like it or not, venture is going to change as well. And so what's going to drive that change? It's all of those things. What is not going to change is this idea that you still have to answer for your own existence. And so when I look at the solo capitalists and folks in these small firms, well, what are they going to do? Are they going to stay solo? Or are they going to grow? Like it's sort of up to them to decide both not only what works well for them, but also what gives them enough of a foundation <clears throat> to survive and thrive in a pretty competitive world, right? Is that if, if folks like Harry are going to bring on a back office team, they have to decide, does that slow them down or does that speed them up? Does that give them more right to live or does that sort of make it harder for them to survive? And that's going to be true in solo capitalists. That's going to be true in dedicated seed firms. That's going to be true in multi-stage firms. And it's going to be true in crossover funds. Everybody has to be able to answer that question of why they should be allowed to survive in a, in a dramatically and rapidly changing competitive landscape. I think that's the most significant thing that everybody's going to have to deal with.
0: Yeah. And I think what's interesting is we've gone through a couple of iterations in the last two decades. It used to be that TCV and Meritech would dominate the growth space. Then you had the Yuri Milner with the DST moving into the market. Then you, you had Massa with the SoftBank moving in. And then Tiger, obviously, in the last sort of iteration of this crossover strategy. It's so dynamic that every couple of years, you see new players, new models popping up. I think it's going to stay quite dynamic. As we have 10 more minutes on the clock, I want to spend some time on Contrary. You have a piece on why Contrary Capital is for you after all this research after all this deliberation time to reflect right and talk to many industry players, why Contrary is your renegade of choice. And you contrasted to a Sequoia or Kleiner Perkins, which are more company centric transaction based companies versus a Y Combinator or Techstars, which are really community centric accelerator programs. And You put Contrary in that community centric bucket. And I just saw some pictures of the Contrary Capital Offsite which I think really speaks to that community centric element of Contrary Capital. Maybe you can elaborate. Yeah, that that
1: credit where credit is due. So I've known Eric Trzyski, who's the founder of Contrary for six years since he was just starting to think about Contrary. And he himself had worked at a YC backed company that got acquired by Lyft. And his realization, his sort of early thesis was both in college and afterwards in the startup world, he was constantly surrounded by super sharp people. And he thought to himself, if I could just find a way to stay close to these people and, and back them in whatever way possible, that I would be able to you know, you have significant success from that, but just by staying plugged into those sharp people. So over time, what that became was Contra's core ethos, which is identify the sharpest people in the world and support them relentlessly throughout their career. And what that means is, or in the early days of country, that was identifying the sharpest people at over 40 different schools across the country in graduate and undergraduate programs, bringing them into a sort of venture partner program where they would work as scouts with us and get to learn alongside us in identifying really high quality businesses. But then by doing that, we would identify who those sharp folks were that we worked with as venture partners. And then we'd stay close to them where when they graduated, if they went to their first job, whether it was working in tech or whatever. We would stay close to them, be a resource for them, offer them a bunch of different components of the community that would support them in their journey. If they go and and start a company, awesome. We want to be their first check. If they go, and one of the reasons I joined Contrary is if they want to go work at a series B or a series C company and, and really learn sort of at a different business, what good looks like so that once they do start a company, they have that experience, awesome. They can go work at those companies. We can help them. We go find those companies. But then what I want to do as sort of leading the growth effort at Contrary is I also want to invest behind those people. If we know they're super sharp and we know that they're congregating in some of these phenomenal businesses, those are probably good companies to invest in even at the later stages. Even if we didn't invest in those companies at the very earliest days, we still want to be able to invest in those. And that's what we've done investing in the folks like Ramp and Anderal and Synthesis and other folks that I mentioned is we've identified those companies that have attracted really high quality talent, right? I refer to them affectionately as talent vortexes these companies that have built up a unique enough culture and a unique enough vision that they're able to attract really high quality people and so a lot of my growth investments even if there aren't contrary community connections there i'm able to go and identify those companies i see as early budding talent vortexes and be able to help bring the community into those companies as well so whether the community is pulling us towards some great companies or we're helping invite those community members to some phenomenal companies that we've met That's the model is that we're constantly trying to identify what are the products or services or different offerings that we can launch within the Contrary community that will keep us close and help us build affinity with these really sharp people. And then just let them tell us where the most exciting opportunities are because we know that they're sharp and we know them super well. And so to your point, that was one of the things this past weekend. We had a phenomenal event at Camp Navarro, just a few hours north of SF. We've got several hundred folks in the community. We were able to get about 250 of them at this event. And we had a bunch of speakers, we had founders, we had other investors, we had all kinds of opportunities to be able to share what we're learning and the opportunities we're seeing in the community. And one of the best things is we have a lot of folks walk away from those events and they have found their co-founders that they're gonna go start businesses with. Or they found people who are working at the companies that they now wanna go work at and and are able to help recruit each other and things. Because we've been so people-centric for years, that's starting to compound where we're leading seed investments of companies of folks we've known for years. We're making growth investments into companies where phenomenal folks have gone to work that we've also known for years. And this is just beginning. I can't even imagine how powerful that flywheel is going to be 10 years from now when folks have continued to advance their careers. But that was the biggest reason I was excited to join Conchure is because as venture becomes unbundled and as, become, as relationships become more critical, I wanted to be at a place that from the very earliest days was building the deepest relationships with the sharpest future founders that I could.
0: Super interesting. And if you're true to your roots uh, doing growth investments. How does it look on a practical side? And you know, growth investors sometimes get a bad rep being called spreadsheet investors, where it's more about, you know, the cohorts looking at different churn rates, looking at the LTV to CAC ratios. And your model seems to be quite different now that you are a contrary capital. Is that out of a main fund or is it a dedicated growth fund? What's the typical entry stages in series B? Is it an early series C
1: and how does it differ from other models? I think that there are sort of three very distinct phases that a company goes through in its life. That first phase being very much about the person finding a, a problem that's worth solving and ideating towards that problem. That's a phase. We have an early stage team that's super focused on that. They're doing pre-seed and seed investing, primarily some series A but it's very focused on those people who are solving problems and iterating and things like that. Where I step into the puzzle is basically the idea that somebody has ideated something really compelling. They've started to build something. They've started to get some early customer interest and they've kind of identified the early inklings of product market fit, but it's very early. And there's the opportunity to come in as a growth investor to be able to effectively pour fuel on that fire, right? Where they've started to nail down some of the core pieces of their model. And now it's a question of how do we get the resources and the right people in place to be able to really scale that model? That's the second phase, and that's where we're really focused, primarily series B and series C investing, but we can flex to some series A's that are maybe a little bit later, and we can go all the way up to to pre-IPO rounds if we want to, but it's very much about how are we identifying those companies that have the product market fit, the economic engine starting to turn, and most importantly, for contrary, the talent vortex. It's really powerful. We, We don't necessarily want to invest in companies that are just, you know, ah, oh, we just got to get butts in seats. Let's just bring folks in. We want to invest in folks that are maintaining a ridiculously high talent bar because those people are going to be the future iterations of once they do super well in this company, we want to help bring them into the community and, and start companies their own someday. And then that third phase that, you know, I've maybe done a little bit of in my career, but we're not as focused on right now is that sort of point where it's like, hey, at this point, we just need capital. We just need capital that we've got our advisors. We've got our, our management team. We've got all the right things in the right place. We just need cash to sort of fuel the engine. And we're not as focused on that, right? We're focused on being a meaningful partner to folks to be able to help them, you know, really put the right, the right people and the right pieces into the right places.
0: So really in the early growth phase, as we're running against the clock, where can people find out more about you? I mentioned the sub stack.
1: I love getting to interact with folks on Twitter. You can see a lot of my writing there and links to my other work and more information about Contrary and stuff. So just on Twitter at KWHarrison13 is the best way to, to get in touch. Perfect, thank you so much.